It's like a, you know, how I relax. Uh-huh. Reading code <laughs> in a bubble bath. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Wednesday, June 26th. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Alex McCaw. How's it going, Alex? Great. Thank you so much for having me. So, Alex, you are uh, formerly of Twitter, currently at Stripe. You are the author of the Spine.js framework and a couple books about JavaScript. And also a bit of a world traveler. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, it's, it was interesting for me because I had recently seen your post about how to travel around the world for a year. And then I was, oh, that's the guy. That's who we're interviewing. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I actually reposted that after, I think it's about a year old um, or a few years old. But yeah, it basically talks about my um, travels. I did like a round the world plane ticket for a whole year through about 19 different countries and it talks about how you can actually do that as well because it's actually pretty simple to do Mm -hmm. yeah so one of the things i've i've done some like semi-extended travel uh before and one of the things that struck me was that it gets a little exhausting um, because so many of your day-to-day needs need to be dealt with just in time like you don't have a regular food place or like even just like a place to go sleep like all those things have you to keep figuring them out again and again did you experience some of that fatigue Oh, absolutely. Like I was in a different bed almost every night that year. Um, But the thing is, you just have to start just get relaxed and get in the flow of things. And you can't have like a timed agenda because especially like in third world nations, things are not always going to go to plan. Uh, And you will be waiting those extra few hours for the bus or whatever. Um, I did find that I got a little burnt out. Like in Vietnam, I just stayed um, in Saigon for about... Uh, three weeks basically just to stay in the same place and try and get grounded a little yeah it's interesting how i noticed with myself like at the beginning of a trip everything's exciting and amazing and impressive and you have almost infinite energy and then after a few weeks you're like i'm not gonna cross the road to go see that thing over there because it's too far (laughs) it's like i need something impressive really to get me to, to even care (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. That's true. I mean, by the end of it, I was definitely ready for something different. Um, I think that's just human nature. You need a, a bit of everything to keep stimulating yourself. And I also feel that um, uh, you need some intellectual stimulation when you're traveling. And for a lot of people, that's um, reading books. And that's when I was did my first trips through South Africa. I definitely like read uh, pretty much everything I could get my hands on. But the second trip, uh, I don't think I could have done it if I wasn't uh, actually writing and writing books and, and writing spine and programming, that kind of thing. That, that's that's interesting to hear. It's like you need that constancy in the sea of change. Yeah, well, absolutely. You're, you're doing a lot of, uh, for me, it was surfing, uh, like this very physical activity, but you also need some intellectual stimulation as well. Yeah. So you're working on, so you've written uh, two books, JavaScript Web Applications and the Little Book on CoffeeScript, which are both yeah. O'Reilly books. Did you, and yes. you wrote both of those on that trip, right? Um, pretty much, yeah. The little book on CoffeeScript is it should be called like the little pamphlet on CoffeeScript, I feel. It's, it is tiny. And I wrote that in two weeks. Um, <laughs> But uh, the little uh, the, the JS web app book that's um, a bit more substantial. In fact, I'm just writing the second version of it right now. Hmm. So you must have had a good experience working with O'Reilly then. Absolutely, they've been incredible. Um, I couldn't have asked for any better editors, to be honest. Um, they, they basically um, writing a book is a pretty interesting experience because um, you think a you're going to get like a ton of like feedback and also maybe like a ton of help from everybody. Not like that at all. They're like, okay, 
Um, you've given us a pitch, we've accepted it, now just go off and write it. And then they only, the whole O'Reilly machine swings in at, at the end when they cut this. We had an amazing copywriter who changed pretty much every sentence I wrote because <laughs> it was so poorly, um, I don't know, spelt and grammared. <laughs> huh. But, um, and then, um, and then, and then their, their publicity machine comes in and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and it turns out that, that like, I would never personally self publish. Um, although maybe I would have made some more money, um, out of it. I think, uh, that in the big scheme of things, it was never really for the money anyway. It was more, more to reach and, uh, educate as many people. Mm. It, it also seems to give you a sort of credibility that other activities don't. It's, that's true it's like yeah. a little line in the bio it's like author of the this it's like ooh, he's a he's a serious guy but but that's the thing it, it's it's uh, it's a little hilarious because uh they they think you're serious because you've written a book but uh anyone can write a book <laughs> it's uh it's just like being cited on, on like wikipedia cites itself it's that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah plus i mean there's at least with a lot of things i've done there's been quite a bit of uh learning just in time kind of it's like, well, I need to teach a thing. I need to teach some people about this, but I don't really remember how that works. So let me go figure it out and, and learn it just enough oh, to teach. That's right. I think like I think writing is uh, is one of the best ways of actually teaching yourself. Like yeah, absolutely. Um, and I didn't know like half the things um, before I read that book. In fact, I never used a backbone until I wrote the backbone chapter, and then I was like, this is fascinating, and I like basically rewrote a lot of the book uh, and wrote spine as well. Um, so yeah, you absolutely learn as you go along. Did, so did Spine come out, Spine was inspired then by your experience writing the book and seeing Backbone and all that? That's right. Yes. I mean, uh, I kind of have a habit of just tinkering around with MVC frameworks. It's basically my hobby. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was like, oh, this Backbone's kind of cool, but, um, I want to just experiment with a few ideas, um, and and I'm really pleased that a lot of those ideas actually got back into Backbone. Mm. Uh, like the asynchronous UI idea, the idea that the user interface updates before any network connections are sent. Um, and it, just to keep things like fast and snappy. And that that, that was the idea was inspired in Spine, and now it's made it back to Backbone. Yeah, I... I- I was uh, I've done some reading on your blog and it seems like you're very into uh non-blocking interfaces as a design philosophy. That's right. Like uh kind of sick of um it's like loading indicators, spinning indicators like uh we have uh all this logic on the client side, we might as well use it um and render on the client side uh and then we can have instant interfaces. Sure. But uh, so that pretty much requires that you keep a lot of state on the client, right? And you have to write a lot of code client side. So that's, there's trade-offs in there, right? There's trade-offs, especially on the initial page load. Mm. But you know what? You can uh, do so much with caching nowadays. Um, you can do also do so much with HTML5 offline uh, apps. Uh, you can like if I if I'm making a mobile web app, I can just use HTML5 offline APIs. Um, and even if the app's not offline, um, it'll still load itself uh, directly from the cache, and it'll load itself instantly. Interesting. But beyond, so beyond the, the page load, you definitely have, there are other trade-offs too, right? So like I, in your section, you had a post on doing asynchronous uh, or non-blocking interfaces. And one of the sections was on validations as like a potential objection. And so you said, let me head off the potential yes. objection, which is, well, if you do validation and the validation fails and you've sort of told the user everything's okay, then you have to do some complicated things. And y- your response to that was, yes. well, do, do validations on the client side then as well. And that way, you know, you know, the data is good before you send it. 
Um, and what struck me about yeah. that was like, yeah, that would work, but now you're sort of introducing duplication between the client and the server. That's right. You ha- that's right. There is a bit of duplication there. Um, and there's not also, you, you can't also do every validation on the client. For example, you can't do a right. uniqueness validation because uh, you don't have total state on the client. Um, and so there are some mm-hmm. trade-offs, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt so about that. Have you, so you, you're at Stripe these days. Has this, uh, mm-hmm. have, have you been able to influence your coworkers along these lines? Like, do you feel like that's part of your, uh, your effect at Stripe? Well, I, I haven't had to. Like, we, we uh, use a backbone app uh, for the, the, the managed front end. Um, like, a stateful app is, mm-hmm. is the way we do things. It's all written in CoffeeScript and Sinatra. Really? The, the dashboard, is it written in Sinatra? Yeah, all our stuff is written in Sinatra. It yeah. seems like uh, a little more complexity than I would expect. Uh, like, almost like you would have outgrown Sinatra already. Uh, and like Rails. gone into, like, a sure. framework like Rails. Um, I don't know. I don't think, personally, uh, Sinatra suits my taste. I don't think I will ever use Rails again. Um, I like tiny little modular apps, um, and I like just using the things I need. And I also like uh, implementing a lot of it myself, uh, especially if uh, I don't think the implementations out there mm-hmm. are, are, are great. So is, is, is Stripe actually a, a series of services then? Like, do you have a lot of little apps going on? We're definitely trying to break our system out into that. I've been writing an internal API, um, and we have uh, like three or four different services now. But honestly, I want pretty much everything to be its own little app. I want like charge creation to be its own app, uh, because that is um, basically what we do. Uh, we create, create charges. Everything else is kind of around the side of that. Um, and there's a fair amount of code around that, so I think it kind of warrants its own separate app. Sure. And, and and just playing devil's advocate again, like there's downsides of this too, right? Now you have these sort of like parallel code bases, which you need to evolve together, right? Like you actually have a dependency between these little apps. That's right. There's definitely downsides, uh, and also downsides in development. Um, when if you if you're building something, you need to have like eight, ten like different apps running, mm-hmm. uh, which is exactly why Thirty Seven Signals developed PAL, um, so that these apps would just like boot up whenever you uh, ask for them. Uh, which is one way of handling it. The other way of handling it is just having a lot of little apps deployed in QA. Um, when you're in development, you just talk to all the QA apps. Mm. Hmm. So you, you mentioned that you're working on an internal API at Stripe. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it'll never see the light of day. Um, it's just for internal services. But uh, it, for things like the checkout, um, instead of giving them database access... I can uh, just write an internal API, uh, and I used something called Poncho um, to write it, and I've uh, open-sourced Poncho. Poncho is basically like a DSL for writing APIs. Um, and uh, in fact, Poncho is basically what we use for the main Stripe API, uh, or we use something very similar to it. So we have this REST, JSON REST API uh, between all our services, basically. Hmm. You seem to, you're a big fan of releasing new open source stuff. <laughs> yeah, my, uh, that is, that is um, something that I love doing, but also something that um, I'm a little worried about. If you have a look at my GitHub, um, there are a lot of projects that uh, need um, some tender loving care, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, 
But what I what I've started doing is some of the ones that I'm not actively working on, like Spine, I will hand off. And there are companies out there whose whole infrastructure is built with Spine, and they are basically maintaining. Right. It's nice when it works out like that. Yes, it is. I'm very lucky. I, I had I interviewed um, Nick Caranto uh, a while back, and he we talked about like the guilt of open source. Which yes. is like, it seems like what you're struggling with. It's like, I want to give this thing that I made to the world, but now I feel like a jerk if I'm not maintaining it. Yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's a constant battle. And I uh, also feel like when you're releasing something, there's a chance that you kind of pollute the, um, the choices out there. Um, and so, like, if I release another JavaScript MVC framework, then people are like, well, no, now what do I use? Like, why didn't you just contribute to that one that was already released? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a kind of a constant internal battle. Yeah. Do you get that pushback about Spine? Uh, yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, I got some pretty nasty emails. Really? <laughs> oh yeah. People people don't like you. Um, I don't know. Releasing new stuff as well. But then again, I get uh, that's offset by all the really nice emails that people send. You know, mm. thank you so much for doing this. Uh, that this is kind of a different approach on things that perhaps works better. For for me than like, some other frameworks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I noticed in, in a, a post you said, I owe everything I have to open source. It's true. I, um, I got my first internship uh, through open source. I was at school and, um, uh, and I was just basically doing the school website and I taught myself programming how to do the school website. And then I started tinkering on other things like a CMS and then I t- uh, made something called Juggernaut, which was this um, streaming service uh, it was like the first of its kind that used back then there was no web socket, so I had to use like flash uh, flash XML sockets, push data to the client and uh, and that got a bunch of usage got pretty popular in fact, uh, I think Twitter ended up using it. Um, I found out many years later when I joined Twitter huh. but um, but that that basically led to my internship and I dropped out of school when I was seventeen. Um, Joined a company in London called Revu. Joined one of the first Ruby teams in London. Uh, and then basically worked at various consultancies, taught myself more and more and more. Um, and then, yeah, here we are today. Yeah. And also, you mentioned that it has introduced you to a lot of people. Oh, that's right. Um, all the best people I know work in open source. Mm. Do you, Absolutely. Um, do you have any advice for people looking to get started with this? Well, uh, it's like if you want to be uh, an author, then you should just read books. Um, if you want to be a, a good coder, then just crack open a library and, and, and just read it. Um, and, and often I love doing that. I will take a new open source library that I found, just um, sit back with a tea and just like browse through everything. Mm. Um, a little classical music and- on in the background. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's like a you know how I relax, uh-huh. reading code <laughs> in a bubble bath. Basically, <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to become a good coder, then um, the, the, there's only a few things you could do: is, is read other people's code and code yourself. Just set yourself projects. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, are you playing with any languages other than Ruby these days? Uh, yeah, and um, well, a lot of JavaScript, yeah, yeah. um, and I taught myself Go recently, which is a r- really fascinating language. Mm. Um, I was writing a HTML5 server-sent event server in Go, 
Um, and you can build, you can write a server in, uh, I don't know, 20 lines of code, which is, I think, pretty unheard of for like a C-based language, or like a, that's how I at least I associate Go. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then this thing can scale up to a ridiculous amount. You can put, pop it on Heroku. You can build your own build pack, um, pop it on Heroku, and then s- scale like. Infant, like compared to Sinatra, it's just um, you could like, scale like ten times, twenty times that. Oh, cool. Anything else outside Go? Um, not really. I've been uh, I've been tinkering around not w- not just with CoffeeScript but with the compiler. Uh, I've been adding um, uh, generators. You know, uh, JavaScript generators. They've just got introduced in Node Harmony, mm. and. Um, and I think they are going to transform node programming. Um, and calling them generators is a little confusing because what they actually give you behind the scenes are things that are more like fibers. Uh, and the way that you use fibers in Ruby, um, you can write code that looks like it's synchronous, but it's actually asynchronous behind the scenes. Uh, and now you can do that with, uh, with JavaScript. Uh, with these things called generators. And what's even better is that they're actually in Node. If you open up Node with a Harmony flag, then you can use um, all these generated functions. Um, and about maybe four or five months ago, I wrote a server in, in Node that used Node Fibers. Uh, and that allowed you to do um, synchronous-style coding um, uh, but it was, again, asynchronous behind the scenes because I think that's one of the, the major problems with node programming is the, the nestled callback hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the problem with that it was it was so slow. Uh, like, node fibers wasn't part of the uh, core library um, and, uh, and every request was just many, many times slower than just raw native node. Mm. Um, so now we have like native support for these generator functions. Uh, basically, uh, yield um, means that we can actually get rid of all those callbacks uh, and just write um, code that looks synchronous. Uh, and I think it's gonna. I, I think don't think it's got enough publicity yet, but I think as soon as it does, it will really change how people program node apps. I want to go back to Stripe for a little bit. How are you enjoying working there? Oh, uh, I love Stripe. Um, we, we've been working on something called the Checkout, um, which is basically uh, this, uh, a bit of client-side code, um, and it builds the checkout for you. It does all the formatting and validation uh, on the client side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't have to build the credit card form yourself. Uh, it'll deal with uh, sending the credit card details securely off to Stripe as well. Uh, so I've been building that, and we have some new developments coming very soon on that, which... I'm super excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've been building uh, all the other client libraries, like uh, the Objective-C ones, um, Stripe.js itself, jQuery payment, those kind of mm. things. Uh, and lastly, I've been working with a, a team, the Chrome team, on request order complete, which is a way to programmatically access order complete data. And now this is going to be coming out. It's in Canary right now. Hopefully it'll be out in um, in in the production Chrome in I I don't know three to four months. Let, uh, cross fingers if Firefox also adopts it, mm. and I think that will really change how uh, online payments and signups are done. Mm. Uh, they will um, 
basically be two clicks, one click uh, to open this pop-up that says, do you want to share XYZ data with the page? Second click to authorize it. Mm-hmm. So rather than enter my name and credit card and all that information, it's just sort of a one autofill thing and I'm done. That's right. And the, the great thing is all that data is already in the browser. It's not like a chicken or egg problem where you need to get people to sign up to this other service to remember their details. Right. It's already there. And Google don't actually remember autocomplete. Uh, sorry, they don't remember credit card data by default at the moment. Uh, although you can enter it yourself in settings of Chrome. But they're going to change that option. So they get, credit card data is going to be remembered by default. It's going to be encrypted on disk. It's going to be secure. Um, and then it's just going to be one click uh, to pay. Interesting. That's cool. I, I, I use uh, 1Password right now, which provides similar functionality. It stores my credit card details and fires them in there for me. And I That's love right. it. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, 1Password's great. But what if you could like remove the whole, that form anyway? Um, it's kind of uh, like the horse's carriage idea. You know, you, you, you invent autocomplete to fix an already broken idea. Why not just remove forms in the first right. place? Right. So instead, there's like, is there like a button on, the, on your site that clicks and that opens up my autocomplete box? So um, basically, what you can do is you can have a form uh, with uh, your classic uh, address like, and credit card inputs yep. in it. And then... Uh, there's a new request order complete function on that form. And so that form doesn't even need to be visible to the user. Um, you can just hide that, call that request order complete function. Now the browser knows what information it needs to ask the user. It'll ask the, it'll prompt the user to fill in that information um, if they haven't already. Uh, and then it'll basically fill in that form as soon as the user authorizes um, the order complete. And, and then you can submit that form. Mm. Sounds good. I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> so uh, one thing that jumped out at me about your travel was it seemed like you were doing a lot of uh, couch surfing using the couch surfing site. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. I did couch surfing in New York and Hawaii uh, and Costa Rica. And I was actually a couch surfing host in London before Interesting. that. I've been, I've been meaning to do both of those, like on both sides of the thing. How, how has that been for you? It's been incredible. I've met some really good friends through it um and actually being a host was perhaps even more rewarding than uh, just going around staying on other people's couches um to be, i mean to be honest couches are uncomfortable <laughs> there's no getting away around yeah. that um and uh but uh i don't know when you're backpacking you're kind of used to sleeping rough sure. um and uh, and it's also one of the best ways to learn about new city uh, like when i was in hong kong and my couch surfing host just showed me around, showed me all the really cool stuff that you would only ever find if you were local. Yeah, there's just you can't beat local knowledge when you're traveling. Oh, absolutely. No, I loved it, and uh, and I want to start actually hosting again. Mm-hmm. So, do you have plans for more travel in the future? Yes, yes. Um, a friend of mine recently told me about this uh, German ship that basically just goes up and down the Caribbean. It's maybe like a hundred foot long ship. Um, and it, it, it's, it's just run by a bunch of Europeans. Um, and you, you, you pay to get on board. It's almost nothing, but you help out. Um, you help, you sail the ship basically. And then you just do this for like a month. You just go, there's like no, no internet or no connectivity, and you're completely escaped uh, from, uh, I don't know, Silicon Valley. Uh-huh. Does that sound appealing right now? 
Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, I'm not sure when I will do it, but I, I want to do it uh, sometime soon. You said that you like traveling alone. Would you describe yourself as an introvert? Uh, I think uh, traveling alone is actually more extrovert because ah. um, you have to put yourself out there and you have to, uh, you meet a lot more people than I think if you were traveling with someone else. Mm. Um, I would say I'm introverted at times, definitely. Um, but the great thing about you know, traveling by yourself is, is you can choose uh, whether to be alone or uh, to hang out with people. I remember my 21st birthday, I was in uh, Hong Kong and I went to this pub crawl and I said, don't know any of you guys, but I'm 21. This is my birthday. We're going to have this incredible time. And then I didn't remember anything else. <laughs> it's, uh, it was interesting. You encouraged, it seemed like in your post, you were encouraging programmers, especially to try this because we have a job where you can do remote, remote work. Yeah, we are so privileged. Um, uh, we are one of the like few professions where we can can be completely remote, uh, and yet so few programmers actually end up doing it. Um, uh, I think it's kind of a waste, to be honest. Um, I think I think I think you should travel. You should really do it. It's it's definitely one of the best things I've ever done. Um, and if you sp- like just spend your whole life in the U.S., uh, I, I think you, I think you're making a mistake. What would you change about how you did that trip? Any missteps? Notable um, ones? Well, the, pro- the problem with, with that trip was that um, it was so quick. Um, I had such an agenda. Uh, I had all these flights I had to make. Uh, one of the problems with my round-the-world ticket is if I miss a single flight, then they cancel the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. Um, so that was like kind of hell over my head for a while. I mean, I could change the dates for free, which was a nice thing. But I had this constant agenda because if you change one date, especially early on in the trip, you have to bump everything up. Uh, and they have a lot of rules. Like, you can only uh, travel for a year. You have to go, like, east in one direction. Um, so that was that was part of the problem. And But I think on the second time, what I'm going to do is just buy a plane ticket out there and uh, don't make any more plans than that. Mm-hmm. Just try and keep things spontaneous. Mm. So that's one thing. And I think the other thing was I took too much stuff. I took like a 90-liter bag, which is a big bag. Um, and I also took a tripod <laughs> strapped to the side of that bag, which is the most stupid idea And ever. scuba gear, I think. Uh, <laughs> and scuba gear. Well, actually, I took a wetsuit. Um <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and then after a while, I just sent the wetsuit and my um, tripod back home because I was like, I don't need the tripod. I haven't used it once, and and the water's so warm. There's no, I don't need a wetsuit. Um, so, uh, I would say maybe like a sixty, seventy liter backpack is uh, more than sufficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I tend to travel very light these days, and it feels like you never hear anybody say. Man, as I, every time I travel, I just bring more and more stuff. And like, I just keep buying bigger bags and wanting more things. It's always the opposite. <laughs> That's right. You always start slimming down every yeah. time. Uh, and you, I also put my clothes on probation, right? So if I'm not wearing something for a while, I'll put it in a pile on probation. And then if, it, uh, if I don't wear it for the next month, then it's yeah. out. Um, and you've got, you got to keep like, slimming your stuff down, because otherwise, you, I, I feel like you, if you have too many things, your mind gets kind of bogged Absolutely. down. Absolutely. That's one of the things I love about travel, is that it, it forces me to, to slim down into just a few, the few things I really need, and then that's all I have to worry about for a while. 
That's right. I had uh, for a whole year. I had my basically all my possessions on my back. Um, yeah, nothing more. Yeah. Plus, the thing with clothes is, I feel like you you somehow always end up accumulating more clothes, or at least I do. I, I guess partly because I do a lot of travel for conferences, and like they almost always have like a conference t shirt, shirt, and then like a vendor t shirt, and like it just I always end yeah. up with more than I left with. I mean, basically, us programmers could just uh, clothe ourselves in for free um, with all the stuff that's, uh, that the startups are giving out. All they need to do is start giving out jeans, exactly. which I think is a great tip if you're budding entrepreneurs out there. I will wear your startup's jeans. Absolutely. Um, and, with a logo uh, emblazoned right across the butt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've got all the T-shirts I need. Um, maybe some socks would be nice, actually. Mm. These are these are the this market is right for disruption. Some Twilio socks, sure, <laughs> absolutely. So I have a. This is probably one of the annoying things about working for a company that a lot of your friends use. But I want to put in a feature request for Stripe. Oh, yeah, it's different. Um, so we are we run a subscription service, so we're using like the subscription payments, and we would love to know exactly what our churn is. Well, actually, I am writing that right now. Wonderful. Uh, so um, I've been writing monthly reports, uh, which will show um, how much you've earned, how much Stripe costs uh, on a month-by-month basis, and with a reconciliation uh, bit at the bottom, which is basically like a godsend for accountants. They love it when all the numbers add up to zero. Yeah. Um, now, but the next step is adding subscription churn to it cool. and actually um, uh, getting some numbers on those. Now... There are actually a number of uh, Stripe like um, startups kind of that, that basically use uh, Stripe OAuth, and they will generate these numbers for yeah. you. Uh, so for the time being, uh, I would definitely recommend those. Yeah, I see. We we ended up rolling our own uh, at the end of the day, but it's always it just feels better when the people with the data do it for you. It's like I'm pretty sure these yeah. numbers are right, but like maybe we messed it up, and that would kind of suck. And yeah, I mean it's a it's a pretty no brainer for for us. Right. Like it's it is something we need to implement. Yeah. We just want we want a little dashboard, a SaaS dashboard, something like that. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Well I'm glad to hear it's on on the way. And that you're not gonna get fired for telling me it's coming. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> what kind of hours are you working? Um well usually like um ten to six. Um Stripe is a kind of is a great kind of place where they let you uh work whatever as you want, as long as you get the stuff yeah. done. Um, is this a, f- it's a like five day of, week? Uh, no, it's a, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a five day. It's not, sometimes I work on the weekends as well to do support it as yeah. well. Like, I mean the startup, when I joined, it was 20 people. Yeah. It's now about 60 people and growth is exploding. Um, and so it, it feels like I have to constantly, um, be doing things. And, and helping out because it's it's just like a rocket ship. Yeah, that you're helping pilot. Yes. Cool. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't touched on? I have a few random ideas to talk right. about, um, like uh, in, uh, encryption, like end-to-end encryption. Okay. Right. Okay, so uh, this is an idea that I've been thinking about recently, um, and that we should bake in end-to-end encryption in web apps. Uh, for by default for private communication, um, and there are only a few ways of doing that. And uh, now it's not really secure enough to actually do that yourself in JavaScript. Hmm. Um, although having said that, a bunch of browsers have started uh, exposing random number generators, which has been the main problem. 
Um, but it's still not very secure. Now, um, the standards body, uh, W3C, have been working on web crypto, and they've just actually a few days ago released a first draft of that. And both browsers, um, Chrome and Firefox, actually have open tickets undergoing development for web crypto. So my hope is soon we will have um, a- a- S- AES and RSA encryption like baked into the browser, mm. and we can use a public key that's in the user's keychain. Mm. Now, uh, then I think we can start doing decryption uh, client-side, um, decryption data client-side, and we can actually do it behind the scenes. So users don't have to know about public and private keys because it's a bit like OpenID. If you, users have to know about how this is all going to work, it's never going to be in the mainstream. Um, so we need to do it behind the scenes. And so, for something like Twitter DMs, where they control all the clients, uh, this is like a no-brainer. They should just add this feature uh, where they're just doing decryption uh, on the client side. Now, there are a lot of problems with uh, J- doing encryption in JS because it's not a trusted client. Um, for example, Gmail could just update the JavaScript, start logging all the decrypted content. Or they could, uh, when you ask for somebody's public key, they could just give you their own key, right? Um, so they could do man-in-the-middle attacks. There are definitely attacks uh, that, that you could do, but the key thing is these can be detected. And I think uh, knowing that your um, communication is compromised is basically half the battle. Mm. Um, and, and I think we should just make end-to-end encryption the, the, like the de facto inside web apps. Ah, interesting, for everything. For a lot of things. Um, I mean, there's always going to be metadata um, that uh, is collected about people that can't be encrypted. Um, but for private communication, I think so. I don't know why you would suddenly say this. It's not like there could be anybody monitoring these sort of communications. Mm. That's that would never right. happen. It just happened. This idea occurred to me completely out of the blue. I mean, it would be wholly illegal, so it would never happen. It, probably no one is even listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I, we actually have set up an encryption tunnel, so I think we're good. Uh, okay. It's, it's vital that no one hear it before the release date. That is yeah, vital. That's super important. Any other uh, pet topics? I think that's uh, all the ones I've been thinking about recently. Okay. Your, your blog is, uh, lays out a lot of your sort of like different categories of life. So it's, I got, or your, your homepage, I guess, your, your portfolio site. So. But that's right. Uh, friends joke to me that like your blog doesn't appeal to anyone. <laughs> it's like people who are into JavaScript and Ruby and traveling and other weird stuff about language and like nobody, nobody. There's no target audience yeah. here. But, but that's a, I just write what I like. And that's honest. okay, right? Like the internet is good at finding stuff. It's like yeah. the travel people will find the travel stuff, and the JavaScript people will find the tra- the, tra- the JavaScript stuff. Yeah, yeah, people can pick. Plus, no one uses RSS anymore because Google Reader's dead, so no (laughs) one's going to subscribe to it. (laughs) That's correct. Especially once you encrypt it. Yes, I'm going to encrypt everything. Encrypt your RSS feed. You can have this feed, but only if you figure it out. (laughs) The rudest blog ever. Okay, well, um, I think that's about it. That's all I have for you. All right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for Absolutely. having me. Absolutely. It was a pleasure on my end as well. Uh, so if uh, people wanted to get in touch with you, what's a good way to do that? Uh, I'm McCaw on Twitter, M-A-C-C-A-W. 
And I'm Alex at Alex McCord. Oh, by the way, I noticed you switched your Twitter handle. It used to be something, and then you moved it over. I have to do this exact yeah. thing because I wanna. I'm, I'm moving my own thing. How was that process? Oh, that is super secret and confidential. Oh, I see. <laughs> I'm um, as an ex Twitter employee. Uh, I definitely did not have right uh, database access um, to do that. Uh-huh. But um, I can uh, put you in touch with uh, the people who uh, who you need to be in touch with, and perhaps they can make. Oh, that interesting. Happen. That would be handy. I mean, I'm I'm willing to just do it the hard way if I can't make that happen. But maybe you and I can send an encrypted email back and forth and make something work. That's right. That's cool. Right. Okay. So if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 56. Today's podcast was recorded by Mike Manor, edited by Igor Stolarski, and produced by Chad Pytel. Anyway, thanks for listening.